So tonight we arrive at the third formal teaching of the Buddha, Adita Parayaya Sutta, or simply translated as burning. Um, so this completes the trilogy. Um, Dhammachaka Pavantana Sutta setting in motion the, uh, the wheel of the Dharma, starts the whole thing off, middle way, four truths. Then we have Anatalakana, the not-self-characteristic, and finally this one. And we gave the, the backstory about how the Buddha had a particular audience in mind. There was a particular group of people he wanted to convert, and these were the dreadlocks ascetics who lived um, and practised on the banks of the Naranjala River which also runs past the Bodhi tree. Um, so when the Buddha was practicing asceticism, when he was still the Bodhisattva, they would have been neighbours. So doubtlessly they knew each other. Um, so the Buddha zeroes in on one person in particular, the elder Kasapa brother, um, spends almost a month hammering away at him uh, with... Um, demonstrations of shamanic power finally breaks down the resistance and they he converts and all the followers convert and so they're ready to be taught and this is what they're taught well this is the opening section of the sutta because he says everything is burning and what is this everything that is burning. The eye sensitivity is burning, visual forms are burning, visual awareness is burning, visual contact is burning, and whatever feeling arises dependent upon visual contact, whether pleasant or painful or neither painful nor pleasant, that too is burning. Burning with what? Burning with the fire of obsession, with the fire of aversion, with the fire of delusion burning with birth, ageing and death, with sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair. The ear sensitivity is burning, the nose sensitivity is burning, the tongue sensitivity is burning, the body sensitivity is burning, the mind sensitivity is burning, phenomena are burning, mind awareness is burning, mind, mind contact is burning, and whatever feeling arises dependent upon mind contact whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, that too is burning. Burning with what? Burning with the fire of obsession, with the fire of aversion, with the fire of delusion. Burning with birth, ageing and death, with sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair. So this is the, the entry. Everything is burning and the everything are the six sens sensitivities, corresponding sense objects, and the corresponding awareness, um, as well as the feeling, the Vedana that arises dependent upon them. Um, so, at the Buddha's time, um, it's usually, uh, or sometimes it's said that the Buddha was a Hindu. The Buddha lived at a time before Hinduism, or before what we know as Hinduism. What we have at the time was a Vedic tradition, which had begun in, in the northwest, in what is now Pakistan, and was moving southeast mm. along the Ganges Valley. Um, and a whole series of other movements, old indigenous movements, new reform movements. Um, there were new ideas like um, karma in our sense of the word or in the modern sense of the word were beginning to develop. Uh, and there were whole, this whole burgeoning variety of philosophies, practices and so on that was going on and a whole mixture of these. Um, the dreadlocks ascetics were focused on fire worship, um, shamanism, the worship of particular spirits um, and, um, and and devas, and sacrifice. 
the use of the sacrifice makes them similar to the Vedic orthodoxy but they were not orthodox because they clearly believed in some kind of enlightenment which is not part of the or was not part of the Vedic orthodoxy at the time um, so the, they like the Buddha's the Bodhisattva and his companions, they practiced a form of tapas, asceticism, generating heat. Tapas means essentially heat, um, but in different ways than the Bodhisattva and his companions did. This is a, this is a different tradition. Um, um, the worship of the fire, the use of the Naga spirit, um, the entry into the river and the coldest nights of the year and so on all indicate a, a different style of, of practice uh, but you notice that for the Vedas that practiced sacrifice and for these people fire is very important and fire is good it's the, it's the fire of the sacrifice um, the, um, when the uh, the early miracles that the Buddha performed all involved fire, columns of light and fire. This is meant to impress these people. Um, the use of tapas, which means heat, you generate heat through your practice. And so heat, fire, these are very positive images in this tradition, along with a lot of people. What the Buddha did he reversed that imagery and he said cooling is good and so you have the word nibbana or in Sanskrit and English nirvana and that's the uh, a, a word coming out from the going out of a fire the cooling of a fire so the Buddha reverses the imagery of the time and at the time it was probably quite you know quite startling now this is something new. Fire is not good, but cooling is. The going out of the fire is good. That's interesting. Did he coin the word nirvana? Not sure. Hmm. Um, so fire becomes a problem, and the extinction of fire becomes the solution. So when the Buddha gives this sermon, he's throwing at them an image that they're very familiar with, but he's spinning it around, he's reversing it. Um, now, we've spoken before about how the Buddha would um, um, focus his teaching or aim his teaching at a specific audience. And so you can see in this discourse, this is created for Kasapa and his followers and given that the Buddha knew them beforehand he may well have thought this whole thing out long beforehand unlike uh, Dhammachaka Pavantana Sutta where you get the feeling that he was flying by the seat of his pants this time he seems to have a, a strategy in mind now these ascetics their practice revolved around a felt intimacy with the elements it's a very elemental style of practice very powerful, very direct and focused directly on the body um, so you have the labour of preparing the fire sacrifice, the ritual bathing, the coal of the midwinter in the river and so on but also this practice was limited by its dependence upon certain very specific conditions without which you could not do it you had to have certain possessions any kind of ritual based practice means you must have the ritual implements there are certain things you have to have in order to go through the rituals and if you don't have them you can't do the rituals so you've got to have certain possessions and also certain places uh, are important this, is, this practice is very much grounded in that area on that river on that particular um, place in other words the sacred places of river and forest 
because these places are, the, uh, are home to the specific spirits invoked in the rituals. So if you go away from that place, you'd have to start again because you've got different spirits. So it's a very location-oriented place, um, rather similar to Australian religion, where you know the, the, the spirits, uh, the holy places, the sacred places, are that location, and the spirits associated with that location, and a certain people have their dreaming around that this particular area. So very uh, geographically specific. Plus, well, the football field is, of course, a new sacred space, which is, in fact, if you actually map the sacred places of Australia and where the footy paddocks are, you'll find a very close connection. Um, plus, you need supplies. You need supplies of wood for the fire. So you've got to be in a forest. You need water for the ritual bathing. You've got to be at a river. Um, so it's it's very a place and possession oriented. You have to do it here. You can't do it anywhere else. The Buddha's approach is very different, if not completely different. Uh, first of all, no special equipment is needed. Um, basically none. These days, of course, we have lots of equipment. <laughs> um, but in those days, they didn't need even the equipment that we have. And the equipment that we have is pretty simple. It's you know, not, not hugely complicated. So it, it's maximum simplicity. And secondly, the practice is not limited to any special place. So the meditation practice, you can do anywhere. Um, one is free to move anywhere. And you notice how these ascetics do not wander. They're locked in this particular place. The Buddhist students wander. They're not locked into any particular place. And this was very important for them. And in wandering, they could take their entire tradition with them and set up camp and practice it wherever they were. They did not need any of this palava that these ascetics need. In other words, his approach to practice is marked by universalism. And if you look at Buddhism as a religion, it's a very good candidate for being the, the first world religion. It spread outside of India and took up root in, complete, in very different cultures, scattered over a huge amount of distance. It, it's transportable. It's portable. It's universal which is com in complete contrast to these people. So, the first thing that the Buddha does with these dreadlocks ascetics, you notice that it's not that they convert, they say, okay, you are a teacher. And then he says, okay, sit down and I will teach you. Which is what he did with the five companions. He says, okay, let's go for a walk. And he takes them away from their sacred places. He takes them to a hill sticking up out of a flat plain far away from their sacred river. Uh, pretty much the opposite location from what the one that they're used to. In other words, he's more than telling them, he's showing them, you don't need your sacred places. You don't need the intervention of these spirits that you've been cultivating a relationship with all these years completely unnecessary we're going to do something totally different here um, and then he teaches them a felt intimacy with the elements now this is something in common with what they were doing before but it's a whole different approach uh, here or before it was their relationship with the spirits and with the particular place that they were in here, the Buddha is saying, you don't need any of that. All you need is what you have, which are the six sense fields. And you have the six sense fields wherever you are. And that's all you need. Um, 
you don't need spirits, you don't need sacred places, you don't need particular seasons. All you need is to cultivate a felt intimacy with the elemental qualities of experience. And in other words, what you need in particular is an intimacy with Vedana, which we talked about before, the realm of affect. And this Vedana we talked about is intimately connected with the senses. If there's, uh, we have, the Buddha has the term contact, pasa or sampasa, sometimes it's <coughs> you have, usually translated contact, but it comes from the verb pusati to touch. We are touched by sense objects. The eye is touched by light. The ear is touched by sound. Um, the nose is touched by odours, etc. With that touch, there is feeling, and they're just, and they are, as we talked about, inextricably linked. And it's this that uh, is the the way into the practice for the, particularly for these ascetics. Um, and in particular. Uh, through the body. Now, um, the Buddha has, uh, when he analyzes the human being, the self within her world, we talked about how he has two basic ways of doing this. One is the five aggregates, and the other here, the six sense fields. Whenever he's talking about anatta, he talks in terms of the five aggregates. When he talks about entanglement, in the world of affect, of feeling, he talks about the six sense fields. And you notice, out of five aggregates, four of them are mental, and one is physical. So it's a predominantly mind-oriented way of looking at the human being. In the six sense fields, five of them are physical, and one is mental. This is a predominantly physical way of looking at the nature of the human being. It, it, the emphasis is on embodiment. Um, so, um, this intimacy with Vedana, with feeling, is cultivated primarily through body. So that the, the role of body in this practice is, is extremely important. Uh, so the Buddha began, he says, everything is burning. Everything. Um, now this everything, sabba, turns up in other discourses. And there's one discourse which is extremely useful, sabba sutta, or simply everything. Where the Buddha begins by saying, I will teach you everything. Now if I was, went to a Dharma talk and the person said, got up and said, I'm going to give you a Dharma talk on everything. <laughs> I'd start feeling anxious and whether I'd get home in time for dinner. <laughs> but in fact, this is a really brief discourse. And so we'll just go through the whole thing. And what is everything? Eye sensitivity and forms, ear sensitivity and sounds, nose sensitivity and odours, tongue sensitivity, tongue sensitivity and tastes, body sensitivity and tangibles, mind sensitivity and phenomena. So everything are the six sensitivities and the corresponding sense objects. Whoever says, rejecting this everything, I shall declare another, if questioned on the foundation of his words, would be unable to explain and would also become distressed. So if someone says, look, um, yes, yes, the realm of the six senses, very important but there is something else and it's even more important because it's transcendental, it's spiritual, etc. Um, um, if questioned on the foundation of his words would be unable to explain. Okay, so what do you base this belief on? What's the foundation? Um, and if challenged on this would become distressed. If we have a view and when challenged, we become distressed. Why do we become distressed? 
obviously we're clinging to the view but what are the views that we would tend to cling to most ferociously? Oh, yeah. Hmm? Oh, yeah. The ones for which we have no foundation, which we accept purely on faith. Which we accept purely on faith, oh, yeah. which, which we've never actually investigated. Hmm. So when someone starts to probe and starts to investigate, we don't know what to say. But but that's what the holy book says. But. What makes you sure that that really is the holy book? What makes you sure that this version you have, this book was several thousand years old, how do you know that this translation is correct? This is one thing that gets up, gets up my nostrils uh, with uh, fundamentalist Christians who believe that the Bible is the literal, literal word of God. And how many of them spend the necessary time studying classical Hebrew and ancient Greek and Aramaic to actually read the word of God because that's, they're the languages God spoke in and usually they don't they just have some translation how on earth do they know? when I was at UQ doing my PhD in Buddhist studies my um, associate supervisor uh, was a professor in biblical studies he specialised in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible um, he knew nothing about Buddhism but he knew everything about studying ancient texts But so I used to hang out with the Old Testament crowd because they were really interesting what they were doing was really quite fascinating um, and I remember one, one time he said there's one thing that every biblical fundamentalist has in common they've never actually studied the Bible <laughs> because he says if you read the Hebrew Bible it's basically a massive storybook and some of those stories are really, really, really weird. And when you listen to the text being expounded by the fundamentalists, they, these are the stories they always avoid <laughs> because they just don't fit in in the, in, in, in the pattern. Um, so when you, uh, the Buddha is saying, if, well, let's go on. Why would the person become distressed? Because it is beyond range is what the Buddha says but beyond range means beyond the range of the senses in other words beyond range of experience so the Buddha is saying if you declare something else whatever it is you're declaring is beyond experience and there is no foundation for it um, except blah 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 it's only blah 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 and that's all it is and that's all it ever can be the only firm ground to understand what's going on is experience. If there is something for us, if there is something beyond the range of human experience, we cannot know anything about it and it is completely irrelevant to us. Um, it's, it's just meaningless. What we have is human experience and human experience comes via the six senses. That's it. End of story. Uh, this is the radical empiricism of the Buddha. Um, so whenever the Buddha speaks about X, whatever it is, what he means is our experience of X. We touched on this when we were talking about life after life. He's more practitioner than philosopher. He does not get caught in metaphysical dead ends. He's just not interested in metaphysical questions. What he's interested in is the nature of experience and given this, how should we live? That's it. Um, so this is empiricism, which of course in the European tradition one, you know, we're quite familiar with. Except that in the European tradition it only counts five senses, the physical senses. Uh, European philosophers don't see mind as a sense sensitivity. Or a sense organ, but for the Buddha he does he just sees it as obvious it's a sensitivity to sense data it's a sense just like all the others well, it has its own peculiar characteristics but it's just another sense sensitivity now the Buddha's empiricism is radical uh, well, uh, empiricism becomes radical when we give up 
any felt belief in that which is beyond experience? What would it be like to drop belief in anything at all that was beyond experience? What, what would it be like to live like that? Well, for example, do we experience our own past? We experience memories which are creations of the mind and these memories arise when? In the present. Now, do we experience the past? No. Um, what do our memories tell us about the past? What would it be like to give up any felt belief in the truth of our memories? That's an interesting one. <laughs> and this in and we actually practice this when when we do the meditation practice. If I'm distracted, quote unquote, by memory, if I ask myself, what is this memory telling me? Is it giving me information about the past? Well the answer is well, I mean in practical terms, sometimes they say something useful or sometimes not. Memories can be useful. But what they certainly tell us is the state of the present. They tell us the present state of the chitta which is producing them. That's what they tell us from the point of view of the practitioner. Um, so I might find myself obsessing about some painful traumatic event that occurred in the past. Now the power of the memory comes from the assumption that this is telling me something true about me. And I am now. And this memory is telling me something which is true about me now. Um, my past. But when we become sensitive to the Buddha's radical empiricism, which we do when we do this practice relentlessly, just staying with present experience and seeing how it comes and goes, we learn to realise that actually what this memory is telling me is the current state of this citta right now. And that's all it's telling me. As such, it's very valuable. So I, a painful memory comes back, I obsess about it, what this is telling me is that right now the chitta is raw and vulnerable and being impacted by mental phenomena that's causing pain and this whole this event is being clothed in the story of my past but all I can ever experience of my past are mental images that arise now that's all there is nothing else out there. And similarly with the future, what would it be like um, to give up any felt belief in the future? To recognise in real time that the future does not exist, that all I have are images and associated sensations and feelings that occur now and that, tell, that what they tell me is what's happening now. They don't tell me anything at all about what will happen. And this is... Uh, so this is um, uh, what the Buddha is getting at. Well, a lot of the time. But in particular in this discourse when he's talking about the immediacy of the senses. Uh, so this, um, this discourse, burning, is, uh, is talking about the felt intimacy of experience, the touch of the world upon me. And this world is both external and internal. Um, 
And this intimacy of stimulus is always happening. There is never a moment that I'm free of it. It's always happening. This is not some kind of abstract third-person philosophy. This is a felt first-person teaching which is designed to bring the practitioner back to the feel of this right here and right now. What does this right now feel like? So contact um, and feeling, touch and response, it's already happening. I don't have to do anything at all to make it happen. It's already happening. We are already responding. We don't have to do anything extra to respond. We're already doing it. So burning points directly to that fact with particular emphasis on its pain and drivenness. So here the, the, the Buddha is really focusing on craving, tanha, the, the restless dissatisfaction that we experience at the heart of things, dis-ease. And this dis-ease is so subtle, that's when things are going well, I'm talking about, when we're having a good time, uh, it's so subtle but so omnipresent that we've, we've ceased noticing it. Um, we notice our thoughts and our feelings blowing about in the wind, but we don't notice the restless, dissatisfied, vulnerable, sensitive quality deep within the chitta itself at the point of impact, bang, when the object strikes the sensitivity. So um, this teaching is all about a particular kind of practice and the practice is all about intimacy with the immediacy of experience, the response to that, the Vedana of it, whether pleasant, painful or otherwise, and the entanglement that occurs because of it, the way that we we are get entangled with whatever comes through the senses and get tied up with it. Um, so it's about feeling our way into what's really going on. So it's about sensitivity and receptivity. Um, there's something going on beneath normal consciousness that is subtly colouring everything that's happening in consciousness. So, what is it? What's going on down there? Uh, whatever it is, it's already here. And it's not a question of looking for it, as we mentioned with Vedana. If we look for it, if we have the idea, the concept, well, I have to look for this, that carries with it the assumption that it may not be here. It may not be discoverable, but it is already here. So it's not looking for it, but feeling, sensing what is already happening. And I think this attitude is quite important. Um, this open, this re receptive openness to what we know is happening right now. But it's so immediate and so universal that we don't, we've stopped noticing it. So as a practice style, I think this is... Remember we did the exercises in um, awareing when we hold the meditation object very lightly, we become aware of the whole field. That's where we're practicing a, a more receptive quality of uh, practice and the next day we did um, restraining the senses and there we practiced a pure receptivity just whatever comes uh, so burning uh, is um, can the teaching could be approached through that style of practice um, and it can be particularly useful towards the end of a retreat so 
if we've been we've been practicing working very hard note 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 and remember noting is directed attention I send the attention out bang I seek out the target bang put put the awareness on it and that's a, it's an energetic directed kind of out there style of practice energy builds concentration builds mindfulness builds we become everything becomes much more sensitive the mind is much clearer towards the end of the retreat when it begins to register in the consciousness that it's not that far away until the end then we begin to suspect that the Buddha's teaching on the non-existence of the future may well be false. (laughs) Now, he may have been right about the past, but I think he might have made a mistake about the future because it feels really, really real. Which, of course, is the imagery coming up fueled by the energy and the, the clarity and the power of the mind which has spent the past three weeks meditating. So the, the mind can create a sense of reality which is really strong precisely because we've been practicing for so long. It's a very interesting phenomenon. Uh, often we might be tempted to think that the longer we go into the retreat, the, more, the, the fewer the distractions become. That is one trajectory but you equally have the trajectory where it's not that the distractions disappear, it's that, we'll, that, it's that we get a much better quality of distraction. <laughs> the mind is capable of just producing the most vivid um, imagery and realities mm. because it's so much more powerful. So, um, to practice a receptivity just to receive this not to fight it not to try to bury it I've got a note harder or alternatively I'll just take a break just forget about it but rather start to open up and just receive, feel what's coming through all these senses and in this, in the case of our relationship to the future of course it's the sixth sense, the mind uh, in this scheme of the six senses, we, we pointed out the emphasis is clearly on body because it's five of them, and you have, then you have mind as the sixth. Um, its role is twofold. One is, well, first of all, the five physical senses, I think we mentioned this before, they're like parallel channels that never intersect. So the eyes receive light and colour. They do not receive sound. The ears receive sound. They do not receive light, and so on. So there's no intersection. There's five quite discrete channels of information. And the mind also has its own discrete channel, that of what's called phenomena. These are, this is a translation of dharmas. And these are mental phenomena. Sometimes in the older translations, you see it translated as mind objects or mental objects. So um, I can see the inside of this hall, that's physical, coming through the eyes. I close my eyes and I remember or imagine this hall and that's purely mind, that's the mind channel. So the mind has its own channel plus it receives data from the five physical senses as well and it brings them together in one place, as it were. Um, And it creates a, a sensual unity. So it creates a felt sense of one place where everything is happening. Um, so when we consider where is seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting and touching taking place, they take place here. Um, so this practice emphasises the here-ness of experience even the here-ness of mind, where am I conceiving myself and my world? Where is that construction of a world taking place? It's taking place here. Um, When we're lost in narrative, we lose that sense of here-ness. 
But when we practice with the six senses, we really a sense of here-ness, and with here is always now. That they, the two of them go together. See, we, it's very much part of working with the senses, the, the here-ness of experience. Um, we talked about and we played with tracking not-self, anatta, through narrative. So the mind creates the story of myself and my life. Um, tracking the six sense fields centers on feeling not narrative uh, the feel of what is it like to be here now thinking about the future what is that experience what touches me with that how do I respond to that here now so it's this practice is concerned with the world defined by affect, by Vedana. It's more intimate than the world defined by narrative and fundamentally more real. Yet, paradoxically, it can be more difficult to notice. And we talked about the power of the mind, its capacity to create an alternative reality. And we are in the habit of living in those alternative realities. The practice of the six senses is all about this reality, including the mental reality, but the mental reality experienced as here, as now. So I'm imagining the future, but I have a clear felt sense. It's This is happening here, and it's happening now. It's not happening there and in the future. And it's this practice, the ground of it is in our relationship to the body. Uh, and again, we come back to the role of the body, how important it is. Um, so, um, we gave the example of hanging out the clothes. Um, hanging out the clothes is very routine physical activity whose narrative power is very weak. So what we find when we're hanging up the clothes is we'll start to spin fantasies and our, we project our sense of reality there into the fantasies. The practice of the sense fields entails staying t- deliberately staying tuned to the direct sensate feeling aspect of the activity. Um, is it routine? Well, it's only routine if I think about it, if I compare it to past and future. Oh, yes, I've done this before. And once it's over, then I can do something real. So that relationship can only exist when past and future are felt to be real. But what if there really isn't anything except this peg? then we start to get this direct sensate feeling aspect of the activity and this is where the practice of the sense fields um, take, takes place um, so this is staying with the body and again this is one reason why we do the body work in the morning it's a way of deliberately entering into the direct, immediate feel of the body and exploring it, exploring what is the nature of the sensation. Because the whole exercise is, is, where is the sensation this morning? Find it, stay with it, relax into it. But there's also the direct, sensate feel of the mind itself, which is available, but much more subtle. Um, So, for example... Thinking and fantasy, thinking about the future. But what about the the direct, sensate experience of the drivenness to think? What does that feel like? And the and the feeling of the unsatisfactory nature, 
the dukkha nature of this particular thought that I've generated, which I can see because I immediately rush to create another one. If this first one was satisfactory, I would have stayed with it. But apparently it isn't because there's this rush to create another one and another one and another one. What's underneath that? What's the field, the driven quality of the need to produce all these thoughts? How is it that that's burning? The restlessness and the agitation. This is part of the Buddha's fire imagery. It's hot in the sense that first of all we get emotionally entangled with it so I'm driven to think of the future <coughs> I take it to be real and then I get tangled up so I better arrange it this way uh, maybe that's not the best way, I'll arrange it that way that'll be really really good, oh Jesus that's really going to be good, that's going to be fantastic how many days, oh it's going to be great but someone might screw it up oh those bastards I better handle that, I could figure out some way to prevent that from happening Constant fueling. Yeah, fueling, agitation, this burning. Um, so, when uh, um, when the Buddha in the Satipatthana Sutta, when the Buddha talks about the six senses, he talks about understanding the sensitivity, the sense object and the feta, the sangyojana, that arises dependent upon both. Um, so he is taking a slightly different tack with the senses. But it's the same thing. The sense of stuckness and drivenness found in our relationship with the senses. The way we get caught up in them, entangled, stuck, can't move beyond them, driven by them. Um, and so... Hence this, the image of the fire, as we just mentioned. Um, for the Buddha, it conveys restlessness and dissatisfaction and a sense of fascination. Yeah. Isn't it interesting to watch a fire? It's like it's, ah, oh, it really draws the eye in. Um, and uh, it's constantly shifting and moving and going somewhere else and there's no rest in it, there's no peace within it um, and so the Buddha um, what the, the, the bliss comes from the cooling of the fire, but in order to find that cooling, we've got to go direct through the fire uh, that's the only way there um, If you look at, let's um, look at another way in which the Buddha talks about fire, or another instance, in uh, Agivacha Gotta Sutta, uh, the dis discourse to Vachagotta on fire. This is another fire sermon. This one given to Vachagotta. This he was a non-Buddhist ascetic. He used to hang around and ask the Buddha questions, and he asked very good questions and he inspired some very good discourses and, and in this particular discourse Vajragata is interested in the nature of the awakened citta when someone's awakened, fully enlightened what's the nature of the, of the citta there and um, the Buddha says to him what do you think Vajra Suppose a fire was burning in front of you. Would you know it was burning in front of you? So you get this picture. They're sitting around and imagine this fire. It's right in front of you. Okay. Do you know that that fire is burning in front of you? I would, Mr. Gotama. Um, Vacha is not a Buddha, so he doesn't say Bhante. He says, Mr. Gotama. Um, if somebody asked you, dependent upon what, does this fire burn? What would you answer? I would answer, this fire burns dependent upon grass and sticks. If this fire was extinguished, would you know that it was extinguished? I would, Mr. Gotama. If someone was to ask you, 
When that fire in front of you was extinguished, where did it go? To the east, the west, the north, or the south? What would you answer? That does not apply, Mr. Gotama. Fire burns dependent upon its fuel of grass and sticks. And remember, fuel is upadana. Remember, we talked about this before. And the translation of upadana is clinging or attachment. So it's fuel and it's also clinging or attachment. Fire burns dependent upon its fuel of grass and sticks. When that fuel is used up and he does not get any more, no longer fed, it is reckoned as cooled. Um, so, for the Buddha, the goal is for the fire to burn itself out. Everything is burning. What we have to do is to become intimate with that experience of burning and in that intimacy stop adding to it. When we do that, the fire goes out. And what can we say about that experience? What, um, if the fire goes out, well, you know that the fire has gone out. But what can you say about it? And here the question is, where has it gone? You've said it's gone out, so where has it gone to? Um, and you can see that the language doesn't cope. Um, that does not apply, Mr. Gotama. Um, so language um, is being uh, is being directed at something which it cannot cope with. The cooling of the fire represents something which is experienced as obvious, as obvious as, yeah, there's the fire here, but now it's gone out. Bleeding obvious. Yet, at the same time, it's impossible to put a concept on it. Whatever concept we put upon it does not apply, doesn't fit. Um, Did that aesthetic um, never convert? Or yeah, eventually. Uh, yeah, it's actually. What, hmm? what? Did you know what happened to it? No, no. I know. that that particular questioning was around about the mind of the the awakened one. Where does it go? Where does it go after death? I think it was saying. Yeah. Um, so that was another. That was a question about life after life. Yeah. Uh, you notice how the Buddha brings it back to here and now. Yeah. Right now, with the fire's gone out, where has it gone? Yeah. Because there's no difference. Um, so this is um, a practice which is immediate it's physical five out of the six senses it has to do with the immediacy of experience and the feeling the, that arises the ocean of affect that we all live in our responses um, and seeing really being clear about those responses and exactly what is going on uh, with them and going through that fire and the fire implies dukkha and this is, a, is, is a, um, an image which conveys what the later tradition calls the dukkha jnanas I think uh, maybe tomorrow we'll talk about dukkha since one or two individuals are going have experienced it during this retreat <laughs> Once or twice. Not very much. Mostly it's been bliss. <laughs> so we'll, we'll talk about that. But through the fire to the other side, which is the going out of the fire. Um, and th th this is the basic theme of the practice that the Buddha is presenting to the dreadlocks, the ascetics, although now there's no more dreadlocks. They've abandoned those in the rivers. So he presents all, all this stuff about burning and then he introduces disenchantment. Seeing in this way the trained, cultivated student is disenchanted with eye sensitivity, disenchanted with visual forms, disenchanted with visual awareness, disenchanted with visual contact, disenchanted with whatever feeling arises dependent upon visual contact, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, and so on, through the other ones. And of course we talked about disenchantment in Anatta Lakana Sutta 
So from here on in, it's exactly the same as Anatolakana, but it's a different entry point. In, with the second discourse on not-self, the entry point is via the five aggregates. Here, the entry point are the six sense fields. And this illustrates an aspect of the Buddha's teaching and, and the practices. There's any number of entry points. And basically, the entry point for each practitioner depends on where their sensitivities lie. That's the way in. And of course, sensitivity can also be associated with pain. So often, it's the pain is the way in. It's the meditator's friend. Is it? Mm-hmm. Who said that? That's <laughs> She's quoting Upandita. Mojanaki <laughs> <laughs> used to say, pain is the key to the door of the life. <laughs> <laughs> As this explanation was being given, the hearts of the thousand bhikkhus were liberated from the taints by not clinging. So one thousand arahants. Bang! (laughs) So you can see how the whole thing is escalating. I mean, from the last discourse was five arahants. Then he had various people around Badanasi. By the time he leaves Badanasi, he's got 60 arahants. And now... He's done a lot of legwork over the past month. But whammo, he's got a thousand. Um, Is this only a month later? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. but, well, he spent time at Baranasi, so maybe six weeks, two months. So what was the time scale of this? How long? First two or three months. After the, after the awakening? Uh, Well, the, two months after the awakening was the first discourse. So let's say this is a cup, maybe a couple of months later. Yeah. Maybe he's got around. He just walked, didn't he? Yeah. So within six months, within the first six months. So uh, Buddhism is getting bigger and bigger. Um, the Buddha's got this large community, and the thing is that these this community of a thousand these are very well known and respected ascetics. Like these, this is a thousand celebrities in one bag, and what he does with them next is he takes them to Rajagaha, to the capital of Magadha. And so everyone's... It's just a huge show because all of these famous ascetics, with their particularly famous, the three Kasapa brothers, have all come to town at once. Wow! And this is completely unscheduled. They normally never do this. And they've all shaved their heads. This is really seriously weird. And there's this other guy there. And this other guy is very young but he seems to be very close to the big bosses and the, in the text it says people were confused who was the student and who was the teacher and the elder Kasapa realised this was going on because he was used to being the big teacher so he gets down and he bows to the Buddha so he's saying publicly he's the teacher I'm the student so the, the Buddha is rocketed to overnight stardom <laughs> in Magadha. He's the number one hit when it comes to um, Dharma in Magadha. So you can see that he, he's very smart. He's very strategic. Having decided, having that maybe six months before, come to that conclusion, okay, I've got to teach. There'll be a few people, maybe, maybe, who could figure this out. He's got onto a roll and now he realises, I can build an international empire and that's exactly what he's setting out to do. So from now on, things get bigger and bigger and bigger. His career is taking off. His training as a prince would have given him that strategic political outlook. Sorry? His training as a, a prince yeah. would have given him that, yeah. that strategy and yes. knowledge of yeah, powerful strengths and stuff. Yeah, he knew, he knew how power worked. He knew how to talk to powerful people. Mm. Um, he, he understood how things worked and that's the source of his Vinaya his experience as a Republican uh, not, not, not a prince but an, a highly ranked Republican aristocrat comes out in the way that he organised his Sangha so he, had a, he, he knew about community organising ok, any other questions or comments? thank you very much Sound
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.